Let's look at Luke eleven thirty seven through 54. There is a black hardback Bible on the floor near you. If you do not have a Bible, please feel free to grab one of those. If you do not own a Bible, that is our gift to you. Uh, please feel free to take that. You don't have to say anything to anyone. Uh, you just take it home. While Jesus was speaking, a Pharisee asked him to dine with him. So he went in and reclined at table. The Pharisee was astonished to see that he did not first wash before dinner. And the Lord said to him, Now you Pharisees cleanse the outside of the cup of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. You fools! Did not he who made the outside make the inside also? But give as alms those things that are within, and behold, everything else is clean for you. But woe to you Pharisees! For you tithe mint and rue and every herb, and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Woe to you, Pharisees, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, for you are like unmarked graves, and people walk over them without knowing it. One of the lawyers answered him, Teacher, in saying these things, you insult us also. And he said, Woe to you, lawyers also. For you load people with burdens hard to bear, and you yourselves do not touch the burdens with one of your fingers. Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses, and you consent to the deeds of your fathers. For they killed them, and you build their tombs. Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. Woe to you lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. You did not enter yourselves, and you hindered those who were entering. As he went away from there, the scribes and the Pharisees began to press him hard and to provoke him to speak about many things, lying in wait for him to catch him in something he might say. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. So here we have this new context. Jesus has just got finished uh, teaching, and now we see as he's teaching, we have a Pharisee that invites him into the house. Now, this is not the first time we've seen a Pharisee do this. Just a couple of chapters earlier, we saw Simon invite Jesus into his house. But why did he invite Jesus into his house? Was it so that he could extend to him this generous hospitality and, and welcome him into his home? No, it's because he wanted to trap him. He wanted to uh, catch him out because he did not believe that he was, in fact, the Messiah and the Son of God. And that's exactly why Luke is writing this letter, to show us Jesus as the Messiah and as the Son of God. In Luke 1, verse 4, he says that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. And the truth of the matter is, church, that we've been taught a lot of things about Jesus. What we need to know is whether or not what we have been taught about Jesus is really the Jesus that is in Scripture. 
Which is why we're taking time to go through the book of Luke so that we can behold the Son of God. And as Paul says in the New Testament, beholding him, we will be changed from one degree of glory to another. So why are we taking all this time to go through the book of Luke to look at Jesus? We need to have certainty concerning the things that we've been taught about Jesus. We are in the middle of what is called a moral revolution in our day and age. In the middle of this moral revolution, you have people who claim to know and love Jesus Christ who are teaching a message about Jesus Christ that is contrary to the one that's in the Bible. And as we go through Facebook and social media and Twitter and people on the news and all kinds of talking heads trying to tell us as believers what Jesus said and did and why he said and did those things, do you think maybe it's a little bit important for us to know for ourselves exactly what Jesus said and did and why he said and did it? Yeah, very, very important. That's the practical side of it. The spiritual side of it is, as Paul says, beholding him, we will become changed from one degree of glory to another. Why? Because it is the Holy Spirit at work in us that is molding us, shaping us. The word that Paul uses is conforming us into the image of the Son. Well, how do I know if that work is being done in my life? Well, the only way I'm going to know if that work is being done in my life is if I can look at Jesus in the Word of God and know if God is leading me through His Son, through the Holy Spirit, to be conformed into His image. That's why we're doing this. And so now we come to a passage like this today, and and this is not really the kind of peace-loving hippie Jesus that people are telling us about, is it? Jesus gets invited into someone's house, and as a guest in someone's house, He just starts laying it down, insulting them. I like from the get-go, like Jesus doesn't wash his hands. It doesn't even say that the Pharisees said anything. It just says he was astonished to see that Jesus didn't wash his hands. And Jesus, knowing his thoughts, we already know this from what we've read already, just straight up addresses what the guy is thinking. Now, a couple of things going on there. One, how can he address what he is thinking if he is not the son of God? And so here this man is inviting Jesus into his home so that he can trap him because he does not believe he is the Son of God. And here he is reading his mind. So immediately this Pharisee is caught off guard because how can this man know what I was thinking? And Jesus just lays it. They haven't even started eating yet. They haven't even started eating yet. And Jesus is like, you clean the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. That's one way to get a party started. I mean, just immediately going after this guy. And this is what we will see throughout the book of Luke. When Jesus comes into contact with people that understand the nature of their own depravity, that understand that they are sinners in need of a Savior, they find in Jesus exactly that. A savior, someone who absolves their sin, who will say to someone pre-cross, mind you, son, your sins are forgiven. And people jump all over him. Well, how can you say, what, would you rather me say, pick up your bed and walk? Pick up your bed and walk. And both happen. Sin's forgiven and the dude picks up his bed and walks and he hasn't walked in however many years. And so when Jesus comes into contact with people who are hurting, who are lost, 
who are in need of a Savior and understand the depths of their own depravity and sinfulness, they find in Jesus a great and mighty Savior. But when, they, when Jesus comes into contact with self-righteous people who think that they are knocking it out of the park on their own, do you know what they find in Jesus? They find the embodiment of the wrath of God. And the same guy who now berates this Pharisee in his own home will be the same guy who will pick up cords and make a whip and drive people out of the temple because they have blasphemed the house of his father. This is the Jesus of Scripture. And it's not, it's not a split personality. It is an absolutely perfect view of the nature and the character of God. Because as long as you think that you are going to save yourself, you don't really realize how lost you are. And apart from Jesus, the only thing that you will ever receive from God is His wrath. But it's in Jesus that we find grace, and we find mercy, and we find forgiveness. But it's only as we come to Him needing Him as Savior, understanding that I am broken and sinful and depraved all on my own, but by the blood of Jesus. Amen? And so we see here Jesus pouring out wrath verbally on this man and on all the rest of the Pharisees. It's not just Him. He is lumping them all. To, well, isn't that a generalization? Well, yeah, it is, but this is where these guys lived. And so by looking at these woes that Jesus gives to the Pharisees, we can see some things that Jesus is drawing our attention to. Things that as believers in Jesus Christ, we need to look at and understand that when we have Christ, we don't have need to front and to try and get these things for ourselves, but we can willingly, lovingly, out of obedience and faith, chase after these things as we worship God with all of our lives. And so we look here, and what is the first thing that Jesus says to the Pharisee? He says, You cleanse the outside of the cup and of the dish, but inside you are full of greed and wickedness. Now, I live in a house now with three kids. My two oldest are like just now getting out of toddler range, okay? And because of that, they think that they can take their bottles and their things anywhere that they want. And so the other day, I was underneath my kid's bed, and there was like a half-eaten peanut butter sandwich under there, right? Like, gross, not nice. But what is worse than half-eaten peanut butter sandwiches under a bed are bottles that have been left in ungodly places with ungodly substances inside. Can I get a witness? All right, namely anything that comes from a cow. And my kids will leave cups and bottles of milk and chocolate milk in these places. And then you know they go missing, right? Which is the worst part. Because then you know sometime, somewhere, when you least expect it and when it is most inconvenient, you're going to find this bottle full of curdled milk and nastiness, right? And that's exactly what happens. And what Jesus is saying is like, you take that nasty bottle 
and you put it in the sink and you clean the outside of it, but you leave the junk inside. That could lead us in one particular direction that says, well, then I need to clean the inside of me too, right? Well, and how are you going to do that? Well, the Pharisees would try to do that by engaging in all sorts of religious activity and adhering to the holiness code that was in the Old Testament. In other words, they would hear the message, the outside's clean, but you need to clean the inside, and they would set about trying to, again, save themselves by not only cleaning the outside, but cleaning the inside as well. Can I just give you, like, the key to the whole test here? You cannot clean the inside of you. You can't do it. You can't change your heart. You can't change your wicked and evil desires. You cannot clean the inside of you. And that was the whole point. And Jesus is going to make the point even more here in just a little bit. And so we'll come back to it. So he says you, you're clean on the outside. In other words, you've, you've done all this work and you've gone through all this religious effort trying to look righteous on the outside, but inside you're still wicked and depraved and the only people you are fooling are yourselves. Now, how do we know this? Because the common people hated the Pharisees. Why? Because no one likes being around self-righteous people. And we all know, however, even though we all are engaged in self-righteous activity, at the same time, when we come in contact with self-righteous people, we understand inherently that there's nothing righteous about self-righteousness. But I'll be the first to tell you, I engage in self-righteous activity all the time. I'm constantly, my, my proclivity, I am prone to trying to save myself. And the only way I can try to save myself is by cleaning myself up on the outside. Right? I get in trouble. I do something I shouldn't do. I, I feel like there's this distance between me and God. I guarantee you if I didn't have a quiet time the day before, I'm having it on that day. The problem with that, there's not a problem with a quiet time. The problem is I'm using my quiet time to try and appease God when Jesus is the one who appeased him for me. Therefore, I am looking unto myself for salvation rather than unto Christ. And that's a problem. Because it is by grace that you have been saved through faith, not by works, lest any man should boast. And no one will stand before the Father on that day and say, well, God, I, you know, I, I tried to have my quiet time, you know, all the time. And, and I, I remembered the song when I was a kid, read my Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And so I, you know, I tried to do that, and, and, I, and I didn't swear uh, out loud, only in my head, and... Um, and when I did swear out loud, I, I felt it coming out. I, you know, I would, I, would, I would change it into some other word like dingfod or, or uh, farfanugal or, or something else so that I wouldn't swear. And, and, I, and I tried to stay away from all those things that I knew I shouldn't eat or drink or, or touch or, or any of that. And, and you know what the Bible says about that? That will just lead you straight to hell. Now, Am I making a stance for you to swear all the time and just do whatever? No, I'm, I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is we try to change our behavior and think that by changing our behavior, we're going to become pleasing to God. 
And that's exactly what the Pharisees were doing. And Jesus said, you still stink on the inside. You're going to have to clean what's on the inside if you want to be pleasing to God. But there's a problem. You can't clean the inside. Only he can. It's God who changes our hearts, who changes our desires through the work of the Holy Spirit. In Ezekiel, God says, I am the one who is able to take out your heart of stone and give you a heart of flesh. God changes our hearts. And he does it through the work of the Holy Spirit when we come to Jesus knowing that we are sinners. The next thing that Jesus says, he says, woe to you Pharisees. Well, before we get there, let's, let's just look. He says, give as alms, verse 41, things that are within and behold, everything is clean for you. In other words, what, what should be happening is that you should be being led from the inside rather than the outside. And this is connected to everything we've been talking about for the last couple of years. Rather than trying to do something so that we can be something, we need to understand that God has in Christ given us a new identity. We are adopted sons and daughters of God. And it's when we understand who we are that we can allow what we do to flow from that. The problem was is that the Pharisees were trying to do on the outside so that they could affect what's on the inside. And you cannot do anything to change who you are on the inside. But let me tell you something. If God in Christ, through the work of the Holy Spirit, changes what's on the inside of you, then what is on the outside of you will come. It will come. Now, when I say that, I'm not talking about a whole bunch of behaviors. But what I am talking about is this attitude that begins to exude out of you. Why? Because we begin to have what Paul calls in Romans chapter 1, the obedience that comes from faith. That's the kind of obedience that God is looking for in his people. It's not an obedience that comes from fear that I better do the right thing so that God doesn't strike me down. But rather it's an obedience that comes from faith. Believing that God in Christ has done everything for me. I'm now free to do everything for him without fear of failure. Without fear of messing it up. Without fear of blowing it. Because everything in my back, I'm putting all my eggs in the basket of Jesus Christ, his cross, his death, his burial, and his resurrection for me and in my place. And because I believe that he did it all, I'm now free to do it all for God without fear of messing it up or doing it wrong. I can tell my friends about Jesus. I can minister to people without worrying about if I did the right thing or say the right thing because God's in control. He did it all for me and I'm free to fail if I have to for his glory. And so we can do that. What that means is now everything that, my that I do in my life exudes from the inside. It's, it's as worship unto God. In all that you do, in everything that you say, in everything that you do, let it be unto the glory of God. That's what we should be doing. And so Jesus ushers, uh, utters a second woe to the Pharisees. Verse 42 for you tithe mint and rue and every herb and neglect justice and the love of God. These you ought to have done without neglecting the others. Again, looking at these 
Pharisees who are doing everything that they can to try and earn favor with God. And so just imagine them going out with their little garden scissors out into their garden and they get down on the mint and they're counting every single little leaf on the mint bush and on the basil bush. And and can I tell you something? I've got a mint bush and a basil bush in my backyard. You could not pay me enough money to go out there and count all of those leaves. All right? But here these guys are counting each leaf and going, okay, that many, okay, carry the one, all right, 10% of that, all right, and cutting off 10% and making sure that they bring their 10% of their mint and their rue and their herbs and all these things to the altar to make a sacrifice to God. See me, God? I went through, I counted, there's not one leaf left over and God in his way would probably, as they're on their way to the temple, make like 50,000 other, you know, leaves pop up so that when they get back, they're like, oh God, did I miscount? Anyway. That's just me talking. They're, they're, they go to all this trouble to calculate down to the tiniest thing so that they can see God, see what I did, see what I did, God. And then on their way home, they pass by the beggar. They pass by the one who doesn't have food. They pass by and they just leave them along the way. And God says, Look, you you do well to tithe, but your tithing means nothing divorced from justice, from mercy, and the love of God. You see, there is the letter of the law, and then there is the spirit of the law, and it is the only one who was ever going to be able to gain favor from God was the one who was able to not only keep the letter of the law, but the spirit of the law as well. That's why Jesus in the Beatitudes elevates the Ten Commandments when he talks to the people in the Sermon on the Mount. And he says, look, you think that you're doing good because you've never committed adultery. Can I tell you about the spirit of the law? Now, this is the Son of God interpreting the law of God in Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. He says, if you even look at a woman lustfully in your heart, you've already committed adultery in God's eyes. It's in God's eyes, it's as if you've already committed the act. Now, we are notorious, right? I even kind of brought it up already. So let's just use swearing for an example because that's something that I deal with all the time. There was a point in my life where I wanted to pat myself on the back when I thought it, but I didn't say it. We, we like to do that. We like to pat ourselves on the back when we think about doing the wrong thing, but then don't actually do it. Thinking that somehow that makes us righteous, when in reality, all that did was reveal who we really are. And that's a problem. Because God says in that scenario, you're just as guilty. He said, you think that you've done good because you've never murdered anyone? If you've ever looked at anyone and said, you fool, you idiot, you've already committed murder in your heart. There is the letter of the law and there's the spirit of the law. And here the Pharisees are trying to keep the very letter of the law. And he says, you have missed the law entirely. Now, what's the problem with that? If they have, in fact, missed the law entirely, it means what? They have no hope in life or in death. Because your only hope in life and death is if you belong to God and to your Savior Jesus Christ. 
And you cannot belong to God if you are found in his eyes to be unrighteous and uncovered before him. If, you, if all you have to clothe yourself is only the good works that you have done, you, my friend, are in trouble. That was another one of those thinking and then saying something else. You're in trouble. Because the only way you stand before God is if you are clothed in righteousness. And the only righteousness that you can ever hope to be clothed in is if God in Christ takes your rags and puts on you the righteousness of Christ. And that's what he's promised to do. Look unto Jesus, the author and the salvation, uh, the author and the finisher of your faith. He is our salvation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5 says that he made him who knew no sin so that we might become the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. You're trying to keep the letter of the law and you've missed the spirit of the law entirely. And then he says, woe to you Pharisees, verse 43, for you love the best seat in the synagogues and greetings in the marketplace. In other words, you are so busy living for the attention of man that you really, in fact, care nothing about what God thinks. It may have started out you caring what God thinks, doing all these things, but along the way you found how people looked at you and said, wow, how holy you are. You mean you really count every leaf Every one and tithe on your mint? Gosh, I'm a sinner. You are so holy. And they begin to enjoy the praise of man. And before long, they find that they're actually doing it for what man thinks rather than what God thinks, which really is what they were doing all along because the, the one that they were trying to appease was their own conscience rather than the wrath of God. I said I was going to get back to you about what he says initially about cleaning the inside of the cup. And here he just drives it home. He says, you know what this is really about? He says, you are like unmarked graves. Like if you thought, okay, all right, all right, Jesus. Okay, I, I can see, I can see that. I, I'll get to work cleaning the inside of myself. I'll, you, I'm dirty, clean on the outside, dirty on, okay, I'll get to work cleaning the inside of me, and oh, justice, you know, I, you're right, I need to pay more attention to people, I, I'm going to start paying more attention to people, I'm, I, and so you get out your list, and some of you might already be there with your notes this morning, you're like, make your list, you're like, okay, I got to be clean on the inside, all right, I got to have justice and mercy for people, God cares about that, forget tithing, oh wait, he didn't say forget tithing, he said you should do that, but you should do the other, okay, so I'll give, and I'll, I'll pay attention to people, and I shouldn't care about what other people think, I should care about what God thinks, and you get your little check checklist out and now Jesus drives the nail in the coffin literally because what does he say here next he says you are like unmarked graves why because ultimately sin doesn't make you dirty it makes you dead I've given you the whole garden you can eat of every tree except for one and if you eat of the one you shall surely die now, did Adam and Eve drop dead the moment they ate of the fruit in, in the way that we think about? No. But something did die. Their spirit died. 
that connection to the Father died. And we who are born in sin, we are born into death. Ephesians says that we were dead in our trespasses and our sins. Dead. So what hope does a dead person have of cleaning the inside of the cup? You cannot. And who cares about the cup being clean if you're dead anyways? And the worst part about it is that in this context, the people that Jesus is talking to are the ones who are supposed to be teaching the people. And Jesus says that you are like unmarked graves and people walk over them without knowing it. Now, for the Pharisees, this meant ceremonial uncleanliness. Because you weren't to walk over a grave. You weren't to touch dead things. And if you did, you would not be acceptable in the temple before God. And so Jesus is saying, not only are you dead and therefore unacceptable to God, but everyone who comes into contact with you and what you're saying and what you're teaching is also becoming unacceptable to God. Because all you do is lead them in the path of death which is self-righteousness, rather than the path of life, which is obedience through faith in Jesus Christ. And then there's the lawyer, which most of the lawyers in that day came from the tribe of Levi because they were the ones involved in the temple and their whole lives revolved around the Levitical law, the law of God. And he says, well, Jesus, you know, By saying these things, you're insulting us as well, as if Jesus didn't realize that. And he goes, oh, I guess you didn't catch it, so let me just make sure you understand. I am insulting you as well, right? Woe to you lawyers, for you load people with burdens hard to bear. And so here these guys are, the the law keepers who are running around trying to get everyone else to keep the law as well. And by keeping the law, what are they doing? Thinking, well, if they're saying that this is what I have to do to be righteous and I'm doing it, I must be righteous, which means what? They're leading them in death. Because as long as they think that they can save themselves, that they can be good enough, Jesus will say to them as he has in other places, I came for the sick and not for the well. Romans chapter 5, God saves who? What did Paul say? Oh, God saves those who have got everything figured out and do everything right and are just holy and righteous. And those people who feel like the doors will, you know, the roof will cave in on them if they associate with God and his people. I mean, that's probably what's going to happen anyways. Is that what Paul said? No, Paul says in Romans chapter 5 that God saves the ungodly. God saves the ungodly. I never knew that there was going to be a day that I rejoice in being ungodly. (laughs) That I would rejoice in being counted among those who are ungodly. Because I spent so much time trying to clean up the outside of the cup. Trying to whitewash the tomb, as Jesus says in Matthew, in the parallel passage. Rather than surrendering to God and saying, God, I am... I am dead in my trespasses and my sin. I'm in need of a Savior. 
And unless you come and you revive me and you redeem me and you reconcile me to my Father, I will not make it. And so these guys are loading people with burdens, but they are the ones who are supposed to understand the law of God and really only demonstrate that they do not understand it whatsoever. There's no effort to relieve the burden, and he calls them hypocrites because they go around building the tombs of the prophets that their fathers killed as if if they were there in that day that they would not have done the same thing. And Jesus says, no, you would have done the same thing. And then here's this interesting verse in, chapter, in verse 52. The last woe to the lawyers, for you have taken away the key of knowledge. My people perish for a lack of knowledge. And so people are perishing because they are being blinded to the truth that their efforts were never meant to save them. And the whole point in looking to a Messiah was not for a governmental reign, but rather for a redemption of our souls. And they have taken away the key of knowledge. Now I'll be a little bit bold here. And I'll say that in our day and in our age, I believe the same thing is happening all over again. That in the church at large today, we have people who are teaching a Christianity that is not Christianity at all. They're teaching what, what I call therapeutic moralistic deism. Change your behavior and work your way to God. And come to God and get everything that your heart ever desired. When the truth of what the word of God says is nothing of the kind. Jesus says those who want to follow after me will have to pick up their cross and follow me. He says the world has hated me, they'll hate you too. Even right here he says... Therefore, also, verse 49, the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute. Remember, the apostles are standing right there when Jesus says that. Oh, I wonder how many in 12 will die. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Number eight, maybe I'm okay. Nine, ten. Now, God loves his children. And God loves to pour good gifts on his children and blessings on his children. But he's also a good father who does not give us everything that we want. He gives us what we need. And when we feel like we should have got something and it's not there, his call to us is not to beg him for what we do not have, but to rejoice in the Jesus that he gave us and the Holy Spirit that he sent to be with us through every season of life, especially those seasons where we feel like we are lacking or missing something. It's in those seasons that God wants to show us that he is enough for us, that he is enough for us. And there is nothing that we need 
that in Christ we do not already possess. You see, the gospel is legal in its ramifications. There was a debt that was owed. And Jesus, by His substitutionary sacrifice on the cross, paid that debt. He stretched out His arms and He said, Tetelestai, paid in full. And His resurrection was a receipt to all those who would believe that that debt was in fact paid in full. And in a court of law, for the one to whom a debt was owed to require one more penny of payment, one more ounce of punishment, He would be unjust and unholy. But we serve a just and a holy God. And those for whom Christ died, he has paid the price. And all who believe have been purchased by the blood of Jesus Christ. And in God's court, the record says, forgiven. But those who stand in that same court of law and produce their own record of payment will be rejected. This is about self-righteousness. And legalism. And it's these Pharisees and lawyers who should have known better. This isn't news to them. I encourage you, if you have your Bibles right there, grab one. Turn to Amos, one of the minor prophets in the Old Testament. And we're going to look just quickly at a couple of verses. I wish we could read the whole thing. We don't have time. So we're going to look quickly at a couple of verses. Amos, Amos chapter 4, verses 4 through 5. God is speaking and he says, Come to Bethel and transgress, means sin, to Gilgal and multiply transgression. Bring your sacrifices every morning, your tithes every three days. Offer a sacrifice of thanksgiving of that which is leavened and proclaim free will offerings. Publish them, for so you love to do, O people of Israel, declares the Lord. Now, if we just went there, we didn't pick it apart, we might think that this is actually a good thing. God's saying it's not a good thing at all that God is saying here. Basically, what he is saying is every time that they are coming to the temple and giving their sacrifices, those sacrifices, God is receiving those as sin. As sin. So even though they're coming, remember the letter and the spirit of the law, even though they're coming and offering the very things that the law of God says to offer, God is receiving it as an insult and a spit in his face because they are coming without the heart that God required. And he says that every time they do it, they are multiplying transgression on themselves. And again, what is this? Publish them for so you love to do. Remember Jesus saying to the Pharisees, you love the praise that you get in the marketplace and the best seat in the house when you come to the gathering. Jesus another time will tell about a Pharisee and a tax collector who go to worship on the same day. And you have the Pharisee who stands there and says, Oh God, thank you that I'm not like this tax collector over here. So full of self-righteousness and pride. Amos chapter 5, verse 6 and 7. 
God says, seek the Lord and live, lest he break out like fire in the house of Joseph and devour, and it devour with none to quench it for Bethel. O you who turn justice to wormwood and cast down righteousness to the earth. Remember Jesus saying, you, you've tithed on all of your herbs, but you've neglected justice. This was not something new that Jesus was saying to these Pharisees. It wasn't news to them. It was something that they were rejecting and neglecting because they loved themselves more than they loved God. In the same chapter, verse 14 through 15, God reminds them, Seek good and not evil that you may live. And so the Lord, the God of hosts, will be with you as you have said. Hate evil and love good and establish justice in the gate. It may be that the Lord, the God of hosts, will be gracious to the remnant of Joseph. In verses 21 through 24. I hate, I despise your feasts. I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me your burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them. And the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs. To the melody of your harps, I will not listen. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. God says that when we come to him with the wrong heart, all of our sacrifices are just sin. That we make a joke of justice and we should seek justice and true righteousness. But justice and righteousness is only found in the cross of Jesus Christ. As Samuel would say to Saul in 1 Samuel 15 verse 22, to obey is better than sacrifice. And we think so often that we can come and we can put enough money in the box. We can do enough good things that we can somehow appease the wrath of God over our lives. And that's just not how it works, folks. Because the only thing that will appease the wrath of God on your behalf is the blood of Jesus Christ. Isaiah 29, verse 13. These people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips while their hearts are far from me. He goes on to say, that they pay more attention to the commandments taught by men than they do the commandments of God. As we went through the Ten Commandments in the New City Catechism this last week, we found that it's not just the letter of the law, it's the spirit of the law. And this week, the very first question that we're going to deal with on Wednesday night is, have we kept the law perfectly? So we dealt with the whole Ten Commandments and we talked about how important they are. We talked about how absolutely critical it is to obey the law of God. And just when we get to the end of it and we, we come to that realization that yes, it is critical. Yes, we must obey. We're faced with reality. And the reality is I cannot and that was the point of the law of God. That's the point that Jesus is trying to make to these Pharisees and to these lawyers. You think that you are saving yourself and you do not realize how quickly you are slipping away. I came to save the sick and not the well. I came for the lost and not the found. The problem is, is that 
it is those who think that they are well and think that they are not sick, think that they know where they are, are the ones who are the most sick and the most lost of all. God, help us to look unto Christ, to look unto the author of our salvation and find that he is enough to not only begin it, but to finish it. I remind you, therefore, brothers, of the gospel that I preached to you, 1 Corinthians chapter one, uh, 15, verse 1, which you received, past tense, in which you stand, present tense, and by which you are being saved, present and ongoing into the future. That this Jesus who was betrayed was also offered up on a tree. He died for your sins as it was written. He was buried and rose from the dead as it was written. And unto him be all glory and all honor and all praise. I owed a debt I could not pay. He paid a debt. He paid my debt. And if you believe, then you know that he paid your debt as well. Let us not fall back then into self-righteousness and legalism because there is this place that we can come to when we say, no, Jesus is my Savior. Yes, Jesus, I'm, I'm saved. My ticket is punched. I'm going to heaven. But then every single day, we live as our own functional saviors instead of daily looking unto Christ, daily looking unto the one who is our salvation, not just for one time, but for all time. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for this morning and for your word. God, we're reminded as we look at these Pharisees, and it's easy to turn up our lip and to shake our head, but God, I'm reminded just how quickly and how easily I fall into the same trap of trying to save myself, of doing enough to appease you or quench your wrath. And God, I fail to remember the gospel. I need it so often. I need it so much. God, let me revel in it. Let me rejoice in what you've done for me through your Son, God, I pray that even this morning the Holy Spirit would freshly apply the gospel to our hearts to remember that it is only by the blood of Jesus Christ that we are saved. It is only through his sacrifice that your wrath has been appeased for us and it has been appeased. The war is over and you're no longer angry with us, God, because when you look at us, you see your son. And in seeing your son, while we see a sinner, you see a saint. While we see one who is lost, you see one whom you have rescued. And if you have not held back your son from us, you will not hold back anything. God, I thank you for that. And as we move into a time of communion this morning, God, of being reminded that we are welcome at your table as sons and daughters. God, I pray that as we eat this bread, which represents the broken body of Christ and this juice and wine which represents his blood that we will allow the gospel to wash over us fresh and new this morning and rejoice in the God of our salvation in Jesus name amen and amen would you come this morning bread and wine 
are on my left, your right over here as you're led. Come worship with us.